Um, but within the family of God, there's different tribes or clans. Uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance is one of those. We're a part of a district of about 90 churches. We're a part of, a, here in the United States, Christian Missionary Alliance, about 2,000 churches and over 25,000 churches around the globe. That's the family that you and I get to be a part of. Uh, I enjoy very much the time that I have to share here. Uh, my wife Pam and I are on the road most every Sunday at a different church. Uh, it's both a, a blessing and a challenge at times as we travel around our district, all the different places. And the few times that I do get to come here, I just will say this. It is always good for my soul to be at Freshwater. And I just find it to be a refreshing place where I can take off the hat of the role that I have and just be a worshiper of Jesus Christ in the community I live with the people I know. And I value that very much here and the time that we have. As a matter of fact, uh, our district, will we have an annual uh, district conference in September, and uh, that will be hosted here at Freshwater this fall. Uh, looking forward to our time with that, mostly because I get to have a conference where I sleep in my own bed every night. Um, this week is an interesting week for our denomination because we're having our um, every other year council, general council. It's in, in Columbus this year. Um, would love if some of you would drive down for a part of that if you get a chance. Uh, back in the beginning of April, you had here on this platform the president of our denomination, John Stumbo. He will almost certainly be reelected to another term um, here that our general council. But in my mind, maybe one of the most significant pieces is that we are the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Missionary is our middle name. We are all about uh, what it says in Acts 1-8, where we, in the power of the Spirit, take the good news of Jesus to our own Jerusalem, our Judeas, our Samarias, and literally to the ends of the earth. Um, this uh, coming Saturday in the afternoon, we're going to have the privilege to commission about a dozen couples who will be going to places around the world. We're sending them out. And I want to thank you because you have a part. When you give to missions here at Freshwater Church, you're literally supporting those who we have the privilege to send all around the globe. Two of the couples that we're sending out that will be commissioned this coming Saturday are from our own district. Both of them will be going to uh, Muslim nations uh, where they will have a very unique and challenging uh, time for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So thank you for your part in all of that. Now I want to make an observation to you all. You may or may not know this, but when we pastors preach, when we teach, often, though we like to tell you it's all about you and what we want you to gain from it, but often it's about us at some level, that we find that the Lord has something he wants to press into our lives, and you just get to have a front row seat, and we kind of speak to ourselves. The message that I want to share with you, the story I want to share with you, has actually been brought to my mind, though it was planned for months, but in the last couple of weeks has come to my mind repeatedly. Uh, I don't know what your last few weeks or days have been like. For me, in my 54 years, I would say that the last couple of weeks would rank among the most difficult I've ever faced in my whole life. Um, and it's at those points when you, like me, run into those moments where we're at a challenge point, uh, maybe something of a broken-hearted point, and we find really what we believe about Jesus. We find truly where our faith in God is. 
And as such, I'd like to walk a little bit of a journey for the times maybe you're like me in a challenging time at the moment, or maybe you will be at some point, because in this life there are challenging and difficult circumstances that come. And I would like us to just walk a little journey today through one chapter in the Bible, one story. Now, I'm going to tell you in advance so that you don't panic on, on this whole thing here. A lot of times pastors will read through a passage of Scripture, then they'll come back and they'll preach on it, and then they'll give the summary and they'll be done. And I'm going to work through a story, and you're going to find out that I'm going to take a long time working through that. And if you think that I'm going to speak after I'm working through the, the reading of the story, then you're going to say, we're going to be here forever and it's not going to go well. So I just need you to know that actually walking through the story, I'm going to editorialize as we walk through it, and that will be our message for today. So don't panic with me. Walk, walk the journey. Um, I also need to tell you that contrary to what most of us thought in our days in school, history and geography matter. Now, I know that's a stunning thought for many of us, but History and geography matter, and, and you're going to see on the screen now a picture up there that's going to fit with the story that we're going to go through. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open to 2 Kings chapter 3, or your smartphone, or your tablet, or whatever you've got. If you don't have any of those, you can just listen. Uh, for those of you trying to find it in your Bible, 2 Kings is right after 1 Kings in the Old Testament. I'm here for you. Um, it, it's about a third of the way through the Bible. You'll find... First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. We're going to be in Second Kings chapter three. So I'm going to read through this. We're going to stop pretty regularly, and you'll see how the little map behind us fits in. Second Kings chapter three, verse one it says Joram, or your translation may say Jehoram. It's a variant of the same uh, Hebrew name. Joram, son of Ahab, became king in Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of King Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years. Now let's stop there. If you're like me, when I was growing up and I'd read through the Bible, that's the part I would skip, right? It's got names that I don't understand. It's got places that I've never seen. It it's talks about years, and I don't really care. Can we get to the good stuff, the meat of the Word of God? Now, I just want to give you a little context in all of this. Now, Joram, it says that his dad's name was Ahab. Now, for those of you that are brilliant Bible scholars, here's your Bible trivia test of the day. Ahab was married to a woman. Her name was what? Jezebel, Ahab and Jezebel, in the annals of history. If ever you're on a game show and there's like, here are the infamous couples of history, Ahab and Jezebel are going to be on that list. Okay? Have you noticed that none of your friends have ever named one of their children Ahab or Jezebel? All right? Can you imagine? This is our daughter, Jezzy. Yeah, it's Jezebel. Um, we don't do that to our kids because this is just people with bad reputation. Ahab and Jezebel were about the most godless people you could ever imagine. Joram grew up in that home. Some of you have grown up in dysfunctional homes, and I just want to tell you that whatever it was, and I feel terrible for you, to be honest, for whatever journey you may have had, Joram understood, because Joram grew up in a terribly dysfunctional home. Now, it says that he became king over Israel. Now, where's Israel? Now, you notice the blue up there. That's the kingdom of Israel. And it said in Samaria, the star there, that's the capital. 
And it said at the same time there was a guy, Jehoshaphat, who's the king down in the yellow part, the kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem is their capital. Now you need to know this. There's a little history here. They're both Jewish nations. So in the Old Testament, we come to the time of the first king of Israel. The first king, his name was what? Anybody know? Saul. His name was Saul. Started out well, didn't finish well, really tried to do it his own way, didn't do it God's way, didn't end well for him at all. The second king of Israel is the most famous king of Israel. His star is still on the flag of Israel today. That was named David, okay? King David, the shepherd king, the one who wrote many of the Psalms that we have in the Bible was the second king. The third king, the wisest man who ever lived, his name was Solomon. Oh, you guys are good. You've been training them well, Scott. Um, Solomon, the third king of Israel. And then we come to Solomon's son, who is the fourth king of Israel. His name was? Yeah, his name. I heard someone. Rehoboam was his name. Rehoboam. You don't really remember him, largely because he was an idiot. <laughs> he was young, and... Um, he, he, and his, he had his posse, and they all did their stuff together, and they decided that they were all that, and eventually it was proven that they weren't all that. And the end result of it was is that the nation had a bit of a civil war and a split. So the kingdom of Israel split into two nations. You have the northern, still called Israel, and it was set up with a new king. His name was Jeroboam. God put him there, gave him the opportunity to start a fresh start, a godly way. Jeroboam didn't do that really well at all. And then Rehoboam, Solomon's son, he held on to the smaller part, kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, still with the capital in Jerusalem. And so hence we go through hundreds of years with two kingdoms. They didn't get along real well together. I will tell you this, that in the history of the northern kingdom, the blue up there, never once was a single one of their leaders, a single king, a godly man, not even close. In the southern kingdom of Judah, about half of the kings would be what we would call godly people, did fairly well, and about half of them weren't. It was a mixed bag. Jehoshaphat would have been in the line of King David and Solomon, and he was a king for about 50 years. He was a reasonably decent guy. He loved God. He wanted to follow God. He didn't always do it perfectly, which is part of why I like him, because I'm a little bit like that as well. I want to follow God. I don't always do it perfectly. That's a little bit of the context for us. See, history matters. Geography works, right? It's going to tie in even more. Let's pick it up. He did evil, this is Joram, the son of Ahab, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother, Ahab and Jezebel, had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the first king of the northern tribes, the son of Nabat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. Now, Mesha, the king of Moab, raised sheep. And he had to supply the king of Israel with a hundred thousand lambs and with the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Now let's just pause right there. So you've got Moab. You see Moab, it's to the south and across from the Dead Sea, the kingdom of Moab there. The kingdom of Moab is essentially under the thumb, under the thumb of the 
kingdom of Israel. They're a vassal nation. They had to pay tribute, taxes. Do you think a nation that had to be under a forced treaty and under the thumb of another nation enjoyed that? Think of our own country. We didn't enjoy that so much, did we? Okay, hence the birth of America. We threw tea into the harbor and all this kind of stuff. They didn't like it either. They didn't want to do it. Now, if you want to actually go for your own independence, if you want to thumb your nose at the people who are over, overruling you, and you want to go your own way, when's the best time to do that? Well, wouldn't it be at a time of leadership transition, right? You got the new king. He's young. The old king's gone. He's young. He's inexperienced. He's untried. He's probably unsure of himself. And so now's the time to go, hey, we're not doing this anymore. So the king of Moab puts all his troops on that small little line between blue and, and Moab there. And he says, we're not doing this anymore. Now, if you're Joram and you're a young leader, what does this mean for you? This is a test of your leadership, right? It's time for you to prove that you are deserving of being the leader of a whole nation. So you're going to take this seriously. You need an early win in your leadership. And so away he goes. He calls up the whole army. Watch how this unfolds for us now. So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria, his capital, and he mobilized all of Israel. And he also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. He said, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Can you believe it? Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And here's what Jehoshaphat says. I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Now we ought to stop here for just a second and ask ourselves, is what Jehoshaphat just said a true statement? And the answer is yes and no. It's true in one sense. Are they all people with Hebrew blood, Jewish people? The answer is yes. He says, hey, we've we got two nations, but we're really all the same people. You're having a problem. I'm there for you. But there's another sense in which they weren't the same at all. Joram, and really the whole nation that walked with him, had no sense of being people of God, being obedient to Yahweh, no real desire to do anything but do their own thing their own way. Jehoshaphat wanted to honor God, not only in his own life, but in the leadership he had, in the people that he led. And he led them in a way, and for the most part, the nation walked with God with him. And you and I can find through Scripture, you go to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, it tells us not to be unequally yoked with those who don't have the same priority of God that we have in marriage and business and other areas of life. Now, they didn't have the book of 1 Corinthians in the time of Jehoshaphat made his decision, but you'll find the same principle actually in the writings of Moses in the first five books of the Bible, which Jehoshaphat certainly would have known. But Jehoshaphat just rather foolishly takes the next step and says, hey, I'm with you. Let's do this together. Now, I need to tell you this. Jehoshaphat made the same mistake three times in his life that we know of. He ruled for about 50 years while Ahab was king and Joram was king and then Joram's son after him. And with all three of them, Jehoshaphat formed an alliance and partnered with them in the stuff that they were doing that was not right or healthy. And every 
time, Jehoshaphat paid a price. Now, I read through the Bible at these points, and I go, Jehoshaphat, hello. It's like McFly, hello. How long is it going to take till you get this? Why didn't you get it the first time? Why didn't you learn it the second time? Now, at the moments like that, I also look in the mirror. I don't know about you all, but I have those moments when I go, oh, well, I've made the same mistake multiple times, not just three, 33, 333. How many times have you and I had to relearn some of the same things, apologize for the same things once again? And I actually am incredibly thankful to find out that there's people like Jehoshaphat in the Bible who are like me and don't always get it right. And don't always get it right the second time. And don't always get it right the third time. And find out that God still loves them. And find out that God still walks with them. So Jehoshaphat says, oh, all right, hey, I'm in. I'm in. What are we doing? How are we going to do this? All right. And, and he actually says, that. he says, so by what route shall we attack? How are we going to do this? I'm, I'm game. Let's go. I'll get all my guys and our little soldier things and we can bring our, all our toys for fighting and we're going to go have at it. And here's what Joram says. We find out that Joram's not completely dumb as a rock. He has a strategy, a manipulative one. He says, through the desert of Edom, Joram answered. And so they set out the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. Now, what does that mean? Now, you see, Edom is down here. So there's the Dead Sea in the center of all of this. The king of Israel doesn't want to come and attack straight into Moab. Why? Because he knows it's a short border and they're going to have all their troops there. It's the obvious pinch point, and that would be a difficult thing to overcome. So what he wants to do is come all the way south and around and back where you see it where it says these tribes. He wants to get into there and come in from the east rather than from the northwest and do a surprise attack from the back side. Now to do that, much like our United States military, we can't just cruise through anywhere we want. You've got to get permission to go through certain places. So part of his reason for asking Jehoshaphat and the king of Judah to join with him is he wanted permission to bring his army through Judah, which he wouldn't have any other way without a fight, and through the kingdom of Edom. Well, Edom is under the thumb of Judah, just like Moab was under the thumb of Israel. So what he does very cleverly is he wants to come around to the backside and he's going to pick up his army, the army of Judah, and by treaty, the army of the king of Edom. He's got three armies and freedom to come around and do a surprise attack from the backside. That's his plan. It's almost, but not quite, a brilliant plan. Now, so it says that they headed out, and after a roundabout march of seven days south and then heading east, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. They're in the wilderness of Edom. Remember when they said that? Let's go and attack through the wilderness of Edom. No one will expect that. Why would no one expect that? Because only stupid people go into the wilderness of Edom. So certainly no one would expect that. And so there they all go, and now they've got tens upon tens of thousands of military men, and they've run out of water, and they're in the wilderness, and they send them out, and they bought out every 7-Eleven there was, and there's no more water. 
There's no oasis. There's no nothing. They've got their animals with them. Why do they have their animals with them? Who thought that was a good idea to bring their pets? It's not their pets. This is in the days before refrigeration, back before C rations and MREs. This is how they brought their food with them. They would literally bring the livestock so that they could milk or slaughter as they needed to to feed the army. There's no water for the animals. There's no water for the men. They're in the wilderness. They're not at a place where they're going to find water anytime soon. You say, well, there's that whole big thing called the Dead Sea. You can't drink out of the Dead Sea. It's the saltiest place on the planet. Can't do it. So at this point, Joram makes a rather interesting comment. I don't know if you think that the Bible is a book of comedy, but I will tell you that it is, and it's proven here in this chapter. Okay? Here's what happens. What exclaimed the king of Israel? Has the Lord called the three of us kings together only to hand us over to Moab? Now you ought to stop here and go, how could he even say that? This is a guy who never went to the synagogue in his life. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in Yahweh. He doesn't serve God at all. His family didn't. He doesn't. He's carrying on the torch of godlessness. And he goes, I can't believe it. God brought us all out here. It's his fault. Now, I start to laugh at that until I look in the mirror again at myself and realize that there are times in my life that I've walked myself into the most foolish of circumstances, all by my own. And yet when I get into a pinch, when things aren't going well, I have a tendency, and maybe you do as well, and that tendency is to blame God. God, why did you let this happen? God, why did you make this happen? God, why didn't you stop me from doing this? God, God, God. And it's all about blaming God. And Joram, who never talked to God, quickly blamed God. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? Basically, Jehoshaphat says, Maybe this would be a good time to pray. And you go, Really? Now you think it's a good time to pray? Maybe, Jehoshaphat, you should have prayed before you agreed to this foolishness. Maybe you should have prayed before you said yes. Maybe you should have prayed before you jumped in to the deep end. Maybe you should have consulted with God. And I go, Jehoshaphat, what were you thinking? Where are your priorities? How can you mess this up so much? Would you not, on significant decisions like this that impact you and so many other people, have prayed it through first? And I look in the mirror again, and I go, well... How many times in my life have I just stepped into something? How many times have I made a decision and said, God, look what I decided for you. Would you bless it? God, look what I'm trying to do. Will you make it all work out? And God's just gracious enough that he helps us in spite of us, as he does in this story. But it's an incredible reminder that you and I ought not to be like Jehoshaphat who ought to have prayed sooner rather than later, who ought to have sought God first rather than last. But at the same time, I will also say, when you find yourself in those moments, better to pray late than not at all, right? And Jehoshaphat says, we should probably have a prayer meeting, I think. And someone says the most astounding thing, this would have taken Everybody would have gasped in the room when the next statement is made. Because here's what's said next. 
an officer of the king of Israel, not an officer of godly Jehoshaphat, an officer of King Joram, the godless king, an officer of the king of Israel, answered, said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. And everybody in the room would have immediately been afraid for this guy's life that Joram didn't just take out a sword and run him through. Well, wise, here's a guy, if you get to stand in the presence of the king, you're one of the top advisors, right? So a top advisor of the godless king. Now, we have Democrats always choose Democrats, and Republicans always choose Republicans to be a part of their cabinet. Joram would have had a litmus test as well. It would be that you can't believe in Yahweh at all if you're going to be a part of my inner circle. And here's a guy who goes, hey, he probably just blurted it out before he thought he was going to, this guy Elisha's here. He's a pretty godly guy. As a matter of fact, he used to, the hands, he used to be the servant of Elijah. You all know him, right? Oh, yeah, they all knew him. He was the guy who was the arch nemesis of Ahab and Jezebel for all their years. He was the godly prophet who always got in their face, who they tried to hunt down and kill repeatedly, who made it not rain for years upon years because this nation would not follow God. That's the Elijah who mentored Elisha, who this guy now, this captain in the army says, hey, there's this prophet, Elisha, he's here. He could probably help us. And Joram's mind would have gone back to all of his childhood stories and watching it take place in front of him. But Jehoshaphat says a fun thing. Jehoshaphat says, oh, the word of the Lord's with him. It basically says, I saw him on the God channel. He's pretty good. All right? Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord's with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Now, I will wonder forever. You're going to have to get in line behind me in heaven to know what it is. There's so many questions I have. And I want to know, why was Elisha here? In the middle of the wilderness, was he like a chaplain in one of the armies? Was he on vacation doing iced tea under a palm tree somewhere? How was it? But God had him there. We don't really know why. I would love to find out. Somehow he's there. They go to him. And, and Elisha said to the king of Israel, Joram, what do we have to do with each other? Don't come to me. Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. This is a fun statement. Basically, he's saying, hey, why do you want me to consult my God? Go to the prophets of your gods, the ones that your mom and dad were so, so caught up in, the ones that they have passed on to you. But there's another part to this, because if you were to read 1 Kings chapter 18, you'd find a fascinating story. If you grew up in Sunday school like me, they always had the little flannel graph things of this. And it's where Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel had this duke it out thing. And basically there was this challenge of let's see which is the real God. And they do the whole thing with the sacrifices and they put ox on the, on the sacrifice uh, there uh, on the altar and say, let's call down fire from our gods. And the 400 prophets of Ahab and Jezebel's gods, they couldn't do anything. And it took Elijah, oh, just one prayer. Boom, fires down, consumes everything, all gone. The dirt, the ground, the altars, the rocks, the, it's all gone. 
And everybody goes, oh, there's a real God. It's Yahweh. There's only one real God. And they followed him for about a day and a half. And, um, and at the end of that, Elijah had all of the prophets of the false gods killed. So basically, what Elisha is saying here, he looks at Jordan and says, hey, why don't you, don't consult me, don't consult my God, consult your gods through your prophets. Talk to all the prophets of your mom and dad. Oh, that's right, they're dead. <laughs> they're gone. You can't really do that anymore, can you? I'm so sorry, too bad. That's funny. The Bible's a funny book. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called the three of us together to hand us over to Moab. He's still going to blame God. Stubbornness rules the day. Never in any of us in this room, but in him, stubbornness rules the day. Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you or even notice you. Now bring me a harpist. Now, I just need to say, when I, I have two daughters, they're in their 20s now, when they were teens, they would sometimes look at myself or my wife and just, they would say, Dad, whatever I just said, which actually seemed to make sense in my mind, they would go, Dad, that's really random. And what they meant is, is it didn't fit whatever, it fit in my head, I don't know. My wife and I tended to be on the same wavelength. My kids weren't always there. So this story, this is a traditional guy's story, right? We've got intrigue. We've got history. We've got armies and strapping men with swords marching through the wilderness. We've got kings. We've got conspiracy stuff going on. We have all kinds of intrigue. We have manipulation. We have all of these things, and the tension is so strong. And you get to this point, and the tension, all oh, those guys are like, oh, this would make a good movie. And here's Elisha, and he gets to the end. He's like, I don't even want to notice you. I would think that you're invisible if it weren't for Jehoshaphat that's here. Oh, by the way, could somebody bring me a harpist? And I just want to go, that's random. That's incredibly random. But I think there's an important lesson to be learned here. It says that Elisha went off and spent some time with the harpist. Well, I appreciated the songs that the group led us in today about the power and presence of our God. It all fits this story so very well. And I just say this, there's times, and I think, Elisha, this is true for, it certainly has been true for myself in my last couple of weeks, and maybe for you in the things you face, that in the midst of our challenges, our heart is often very unsettled. Our mind is going a thousand and one directions. Elisha has all this stuff swirling of his mentor and the great confrontations he had with Ahab and Jezebel and this whole situation of why in the world these three kings are out in the middle of the wilderness doing something stupid anyway. And he has all this stuff within him. And he knows that in the noise of all of that, it's really hard to hear the voice of God. And yet it's critical in the days of our most significant challenges and distress that we hear the voice of God. And whether you do it alone in your car or your home or with a group of friends like your church family, there is something significant to worshiping God in music.
and letting him begin to flow like the coming tide into your heart and life. And you can begin to calm down and breathe deep and worship him. And you can begin to have the noise of everything else fade away. And you can begin to hear the voice of God. And that's exactly what Elisha did. And he comes back then, having had some time to worship and to listen. The two go hand in hand, worship and listen. It says, while the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. And then he comes back to everybody, he says, this is what the Lord says, make this valley full of ditches, for this is what the Lord says, you will see neither the wind nor the rain, yet this valley will be filled with water. And you and your cattle and your other animals will drink. Here's the key verse of the whole chapter. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. This is an easy thing. This is a simple thing. And he will also hand Moab over to you. And you're to overthrow all the cities. And he goes on from there. Now, I'm just going to wrap this up with a few final thoughts. Here's how this goes from here. Elisha hears from God, dig ditches in the valley in the wilderness. And the three kings, they don't have anything better to do. They're going to die out there anyway, so they might as well do it. So they go to all their soldiers and they say, hey, all you soldiers, take out of your backpacks those little flippy shovel things that you got, you know, and dig ditches here in the valley. Can you imagine those soldiers? We had some of you who are veterans who stood up earlier, and I know that you never would have had cause to second-guess your superiors ever. But can you imagine all these soldiers going, hey, it never rains here. There's no water here, and you want us to, we're dying. We have no energy left. We're going to have to fight a battle with what little energy we do have, and we're probably not going to win that because we don't have anything within us. And you want us to dig sand? Why would we do that? Why would we do that? I can just imagine these soldiers going, the kings have sunstroke. They're complete, complete loons. But I will make this observation to you. Scripture tells us time and again, it's illustrated in the Old Testament, it's taught in the New Testament, that you and I need to be responsive, obedient, submissive to those that God places in authority over us. And I will tell you that the degree to which those soldiers obeyed foolish authority over them is the degree to which they were blessed with water. The amount of their obedience had a direct correlation to the amount of the provision that was to come. This is a biblical principle seen time and again. The kings didn't deserve respect at this moment, but they were still in authority. And so those guys, they dug, and some of them dug deep ditches because they were respectful and knew they needed to. Some of them probably dug a ditch about that deep because then they could say to their sergeant, yeah, I did it, I did it, honest, look, there it is. But it was hardly anything. And it says that water came flowing through the valley. We don't really know exactly how it happened. Some of you have lived out in the west of the United States. You know what a flash flood can be like. You don't even see the storm. It can happen five, ten miles away. And the water suddenly, without warning, in the sunlight can come whipping through the valley if you're not careful. And it can be deadly. But somehow or another, water flowed through. Now remember, the 
geography matters, they came around, and they're now down here coming this way. And the sun rises in the morning, red in the morning, over the red-colored sand, and there's water in those, and these guys are drinking for all they're worth. The water has flowed into those trenches, and they just put their faces down. They set all their stuff down, put their faces in the water, and drink deeply and deeply and deeply. Now, the other thing that's happened at the same time is that the nation of Moab, this was the worst-kept secret on the planet. They had their spy satellites up, the drones flying over, they had spies out. They knew this whole thing was going on, and they didn't have a long walk. They brought their soldiers down to this border. It was a shorter trip for them. They, they had front-loaded their whole army. They knew what was happening. It was not a surprise attack. And they're standing there looking to the east. The sun rises, and they see the sun shine on the water in a valley where there's never water, and it's red. And they look at it, and they go, it's blood. We knew those three. Those three armies can't even get along well enough to fight a battle. They fight against each other. They have killed each other. They've killed each other. And the next thing that soldiers think, once they realize they don't really have to fight a battle, is that all those soldiers are up there. That means they're dead. They have stuff. It's called plunder. I want the plunder. So imagine that Scott and I, it's like we're standing side by side, Hey, I want the plunder. I, I elbow him really good in the gut so that I get a head start. You know, I'm running faster than him because he can have the silver. I want the gold. I, I want to get there first. And I want to be able to have two hands, so I set down my shield and my sword because I want to be able to carry all this stuff back. So you have the whole army of Moab. They go running up this valley, and suddenly there's these three armies. They're, they're down on their faces. They're drinking all this water, and they look up, and here comes the enemy army without weapons running straight at them. That's funny, unless you're that army. And God did an amazing thing. He took care of their immediate need, their death-defying need. They had to have water. And he took care of their circumstantial problem, an enemy that they had to fight against. God's a really great multitasker. And he could handle it all. It was an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. And I've needed to be reminded of that kind of a God often in the last few weeks. Because I've faced challenges in my life that sometimes are of my own doing, and I can't believe that God would still put up with me like he did with Jehoshaphat. He does. He is still faithful to us even when we're foolish. There's sometimes I've been in situations that were completely of my own wrongdoing, and I knew it walking in, like Joram. I just bullheaded, pushed my way in. And somehow, even though I'm blaming God, God helps, and I don't deserve it, but he does. And sometimes I'm in situations like the king of Edom. He just happened to be the king at the wrong place at the wrong time, and he sucked into the whole thing. It wasn't his fault. He just is part of it, but he's going to pay the price as well, and God takes care of him. So whether it was our own wrongdoing, our own ignorance, or just our own wrong place, wrong time, God steps in. And he can handle anything. If he can give water in the wilderness to tens of thousands of men, if he can set free an alcoholic to be eight years sober, 
If he can save you and me, he can meet us in whatever we face. He is that kind of a God. It is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. I've needed to hear that again these past two weeks. And I just would like to close by praying this over all of us. If we could just stand together in honor of the one who is such an incredible God that he could do this, including for whatever it is that you're going to face in the coming days. Let's honor him and call out to him. Jesus, I thank you for how you modeled this for us. Jesus, you died on the cross. You took care of our immediate needs of sin and stuff in our life. You take care of our eternal needs. You you take care of it all on the cross. God, I thank you that you're an incredible God. I thank you for the times, God, that you have worked in spite of me. I thank you for the times you've helped when I didn't deserve it. I thank you, God, that time and again, I've come up to circumstances that are way above my pay grade, way above anything I know how to handle, way beyond any wisdom or experience that I have, and I have found you to be more than sufficient every single time. And Lord, I pray that the mantra will still beat in my mind and in everybody's here, whatever we face, this is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. We worship you and praise you that you are that kind of a God. And we love you and commit our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Blessings to you as you go.